Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Sarah Morton Rupert, lead author on time lapse monitoring of stress field variations within the lower Permian shales in Kansas and May's The Leading Edge. We explore near surface geophysics in detail. This conversation is a great primer on the value of near surface geophysics to scientists and the public at large. Whether building a house, building a bridge, or remediating an old salt mine, Sarah provides a lot of actionable information in this episode. And if you are wondering the best way to get engaged in this society, Sarah has you covered there as well. Sarah currently is a graduate research assistant at the Kansas Geological Survey. Her current work focuses on surface wave seismic methods to investigate how surface waves behave and interact with different geologic and engineering structures. She serves as vice chair of the SEG Near Surface Geophysics Technical Section. For the full show notes, visit seg.org forward slash podcast. Now for our conversation. So what was the primary objective of your study? So the reason we've been down in Hutchinson for the last several years is because that area is an abandoned um, salt dissolution mining site. And there are several houses and other types of infrastructure in the area. And although the wells are abandoned, those voids are still being monitored to make sure that more subsidence is not still occurring. And if it is still ongoing, making sure it doesn't turn into a catastrophic failure. So our group has actually been at that field site since probably the mid to early 2000s, if not earlier. But my study only focuses as far back as 2013, because that's around the time where we believe we perfected our field method. So, so speaking of where you're working, what impacts did the mining at Hutchinson Salt Member in the early 20th century have on the state of Kansas? So the Hutchinson Salt Member is a very large deposit, if you will, that expands across most of south central Kansas parts of Oklahoma, as well as Texas. So it's a pretty large salt resource, if you will. But back in the early 20th, early 20th century, mining regulations were way less restrictive than they are now. So what that means is that sometimes they would run into issues with their boreholes, where the way, just the mechanism in which the salt dissolution would occur, it would dissolve laterally through the salt. And if wells were unfortunately too close, the voids would combine and create what's known as a gallery. And then that creates very large unsupported cap rock. And when you get too large unsupported cap rock, that's when your subsidence and collapse occurs. So there are sinkholes visible at the surface in this area, and we're trying to prevent more of those from happening. Gallery is such a euphemistic name for what sounds like not a good uh, geological development. Not um, the type of gallery you want to see. <laughs> no. What are a few of the important features of evaporite karst environments? Well, so first of all, evaporite karsts are kind of the lesser known type of karst material. More people are familiar with carbonate karst than they are evaporate karst. And part of that is, you could say, Florida. So there's a lot of carbonate karst in Florida. And so people, you are often hearing about it in the news. 
But the thing about evaporate cars is that it actually has a significantly higher dissolution rate than carbonate cars. So the way I talk about it is evaporate cars has a dissolution rate on an engineering scale versus carbonate cars is more of a geologic scale. Another thing about evaporate karst materials, so types of evaporate karst that people may be familiar with are gypsum and hydrides and rock salt. And the thing about these materials that differentiates them from carbonate karst, in addition to faster dissolution rates, is also their strength. So carbonate rocks are, have a much stronger strength than rock salt, for instance. And everybody's familiar with rock salt. So you can just think of how quickly that dissolves readily. And just think about a large salt deposit and how taking what we already know about how fast it dissolves, applying that to a really large deposit that is 100 plus meters thick, think of how quickly those dissolution rates will create large voids if it goes uncontrolled. So this comes up quite a few times in your paper, and I hadn't heard of it before. What is stoping? And it might be, I assume it's not stopping, but I... <laughs> You, you are correct. It is uh, the proper pronunciation is stoping. So stoping is the progressive failure of roof rock. And this often leads to a rapid migration of a void vertically. So you can't, so it's not so much that the void itself is physically moving upwards, but it's basically creating, it's becoming a taller void. So that's what it's vertically migrating. And if it migrates all the way to the surface, that's when you get ground collapse. Or if it migrates into a more unconsolidated material that doesn't have, that can't hold itself up. So we want to avoid stoping so that we don't create sinkholes. Mm. So your paper is looking at particular wells and based on your results, what are some of the likely outcomes for what you call well 2A and, and how might those outcomes impact the local community from which the well resides in? So we focused on this particular well because there is infrastructure in the immediate area. And we want to make sure that that infrastructure still has a sturdy foundation and it doesn't collapse. And because there are already sinkholes in the immediate area, say less than probably a couple hundred meters, we want to make sure that what happened over at those wells doesn't happen at this one in particular. And so this is of concern because since the, the salt formation expands laterally than just this immediate area in Hutchinson, like I said, it expands across most of central Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas. So it's important that the salt deposit stays confined and doesn't have an interaction with water because one of the most critical components of uh, dissolution, if you will, is you need to have an inlet and an outlet. So an inlet for the water to come through and an outlet for the material to go. Because if you have an exit point, then the material will change. And that's how you change the whole mechanics of it. And this is probably much more than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> so basically, we want to make sure that's what's happened at other wells in this area doesn't occur at this particular well that we discuss in my paper so that you don't have infrastructure failure. So that I think would be pretty clear to your general audience why that would matter. You know, what other uses could time-lapse passive seismic wave surveys serve? And, and why should the public be maybe more aware of this type of scientific work? So time-lapse surveys are very valuable anytime you want to monitor for change. 
And in our case, we are monitoring for changes in shear wave velocity structure because that's what we can directly measure with our seismic. Since shear wave velocity is directly related to the shear modulus or how stiff a material is, we believe that the velocity variations that we are measuring from the fields are representative of changes in the stress conditions of the cap rock or the roof rock. And these stress conditions that we're seeing in Hutchinson specifically are consistent with stoping. So we want to keep monitoring this area to make sure that that stoping doesn't continue all the way to the surface, like I said earlier. Now, a, a portion of this paper was presented at the 2018 SEG annual meeting. And I'm curious, how did that presentation help contribute to these final results that appear in May's The Leading Edge? So like I mentioned earlier, this project has been going on with our group since probably the early 2000s and prior. And the reason I brought it finally to the annual meeting in 2018 was because of the data itself. And so why I was so excited about this data is because I believed we actually witnessed, if you will, a full cycle of these stress changes. And what I mean by a full cycle is I mean we observed baseline conditions, so stable conditions. We, under, we then saw a decrease in velocity, increases in velocity, and then we saw the material kind of recovering, if you will, the material going, the velocity conditions of the material going back to similar base, baseline or stable conditions. But what's different between the start and end of my study is that the velocity structure you see most recently in 2018 is not to the same level or same velocity value as what we originally witnessed in 2013. And so what that tells us, in addition to the other changes we saw, is that there was a localized failure event. So as a whole, we believe we observed this almost full cycle of buildup of stress and collapse of material. And now that the collapse has occurred, the stress field is kind of restabilizing, which I do not believe is something that has been published previously. So looking a, a little bit more generally in the, in the special section for May, in Campbell et al.'s paper, they're testing to see how well smartphones perform mapping buried pipes. And their studies suggest kind of optimistically that smartphones could possibly provide a more affordable approach to the acquisition of geophysical data. If smartphones did prove useful in acquiring geophysical data, what impact would that have on near-surface research? I've been hearing people talking about the utility of smartphones for data collection for some time now. And you're right, everybody has a smartphone, it seems like, these days. And you almost can't even get a non-smartphone. So they are definitely a tool that is more readily available in a way. But for my speaking from my own type of work, which requires longer arrays, I'm not sure it would be effective just yet because I require seismic surveys that are more than 48 stations, which will require 48 smartphones. So I think for single station work, it could be pretty effective because you wouldn't have to haul a lot to the field. You already have the tool. And as long as you have a way to extract the data and get it into the proper format you need for data processing, 
I think it could be a very effective tool. As long as you don't leave your cell phone alone in the field, I think you'll have a better, I think it's better off. I, I personally get really concerned with longer arrays that somebody's going to come and steal some of my equipment. So I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving 48 cell phones out there. But Another paper in the special section written by Elaine Plattner highlights an open source ground penetrating radar processing and visualization software. You know, I'm kind of just curious too, in general terms, what technology or tools, maybe not smartphones, uh, but something else has you particularly excited for your own research? So what I really like about my research is partly related to my own types of interests. And I have a keen interest in engineering geophysics and incorporating more interdisciplinary knowledge into the type of work that we do. So for instance, part of the reason I actually started looking more at stress changes or stress field changes and stress conditions is because I'm actually getting a degree in geotechnical engineering or soil engineering, which is helping me better develop my understanding of statics and mechanics. And I can apply that to our geophysical data to kind of get a better understanding of what's happening in the subsurface. If we can add more value to our pre-existing data, I think it will help us sell it to other types of scientists, other types of engineers and such, because you can almost relate it back to their field or their, if you can speak in terms of what they're familiar with, it adds value to a different type of group, right? So you're not really changing your work, but you're changing the way you apply it and the way you communicate it. And that's what makes me excited because we're able to look at the data in a different way and almost add more detail to our interpretation. So it's not so much changing the tools that we're using in terms of physical tools in the field, but it's changing tools in terms of our knowledge set and being able to better communicate what we believe is happening in the subsurface. And that is so important because we are all, in geophysics, we often do a lot of non-invasive testing, right? Because boreholes and drilling can be really expensive. At least in my work, we try to stay on the non-invasive side. So if we can add more information to our non-invasive types of observations, that will increase the actual overall value of our work versus invasive testing, if that makes sense. But of course, invasive testing still has its value because you can use it to verify. But perhaps you can decrease the amount of invasive testing you do because of how much information you're getting from the non-invasive results. It's a great answer. Makes a lot of sense. You know, if you could, if you could put this paper that in anybody's hand and could just hand it to them, what would you, who would you want to be able to have your paper and what would you hope they would take away from reading it? So something that I've encountered with my work related to karst features and sinkholes is that most people don't use seismic for this for sinkhole monitoring or sinkhole investigations. From talking to other people at conferences, I've found that a lot of people usually say, well, why aren't you using ERT? Why aren't you using gravity? Why aren't you using GPR? Basically, any other type of near-surface geophysical method, people are always going to ask you, why aren't you using this tool? And it usually comes back to water, is why people use other types of geophysical tools. And with surface wave methods, obviously, 
you can't exactly detect changes in water. You can't map out water channels and inlets and outlets like I was talking about before. But what's so important about surface wave methods is what I mentioned earlier, which is this relation between shear wave velocity and the shear modulus. And I am more concerned about how much stress, how much load is being applied to the roof material of these voids, because I want to determine when that failure is going to occur. Yes, it's important to also understand the you know, geometric structure or the flow paths, but we also need to have this other component, which is where surface wave methods can become really valuable. And that's where you can determine those actual mechanical stress field changes. So if I were to put this in somebody else's hands, I, I mean, I'm already trying to send this to engineers and talking to them because these are the types of things that they're interested in. They want to know when failure is going to occur. And so if we can determine these stages of failures or stages to failure, then that will give them another way to monitor um, non-invasively. You know, I want to close with a couple more general questions. You know, what role has the SDG Near Surface Geophysics Technical Session had in your own professional development? So I've been involved with the Near Surface Geophysics Technical Section since basically its inception. And that's really just because I walked up to one of the other leaders of the NSTS and asked them why they didn't have any student members. And ever since then, I've found myself filling in different types of roles and positions, and I've absolutely enjoyed my involvement with them. I really believe that because I joined the leadership committee, I've been able to actually start helping other students like myself, helping them find other opportunities or creating programs or events at the annual meeting that I personally would have liked to see as I was growing through my graduate and undergraduate career. So that's part what I always try to do with my role right now as a student is create opportunities that I wish I had. And so through my involvement with this and as the first student on it, I've been able to immediately talk and speak to other types of prof- practicing professionals, other professors, other research leaders in our field of near surface. And Not only have I gotten to know them, but I've been able to further develop myself because it's helped me figure out what I'm interested in for a career. And it's also helped me determine what I want out of the SEG. So it gives me a way to see what SEG is doing and the types of benefits it can give me and then how those benefits help other students and then what we can do to enhance them to reach more students. Because I always say that students are our future, right? So we want to make sure that what we're doing as a society is helping develop our students who are going into the workforce. So by being part of the near surface as a student, I've been able to, I think, help make that change and help reach more students. And what I, so I've been using my role as a student on near surface to kind of pay it forward to other students in hopes that they'll then be able to connect with more students and then just continue creating more future leaders that will emerge into our field in the new future. Because near surface problems and the near surface community will always be relevant in applied geophysics. We live on the near surface. Our houses are built on the near surface. Our roads, our infrastructure, you know, our waterways, our water resources, they're 
all related to the near surface. So there's always going to be opportunities for students. So it's important for us as a society to make sure that we are fully preparing our future leaders to excel and help not only themselves, but help others, help the greater population, the general public and such like that. So I'm very grateful to the NSTS for the amount of things I've been able to do. Uh, This year, I'm hosting a bag session specifically on the value of near surface, which is really exciting. Um, An opportunity I probably never would have had had I not been involved with the NSTS. And um, I've actually had other SCG leaders reach out to me to talk to me about what I think, you know, just to help get ideas and such like that about what we can do or help find people, help find session chairs. I'm also helping the SCG develop a better relationship with some of the national engineering societies. So it's given me an opportunity to build myself professionally as well as, you know, just help make SCG better, help it better serve its community. Because we can always move up, right? So there's always ways that we can improve. And I feel like I really appreciate the opportunity to contribute to that. Drilling down into that a little bit more. if you did have the ear of the SDG board of directors and and you almost did uh, a few minutes ago, what, and you're doing these things actively, but I'm just curious if, if there is something else you might say to them that could help encourage and foster the next generation of geophysicists, what could we be doing as a society? What could the board help direct to get more students as engaged as you and take an active role? So I I have become a pretty big advocate for the near surface community as well as the NSTS in the SEG. My role on the NSTS leadership actually gives me more confidence as a student and as a professional, if you will. I like to call myself an emerging professional because I, knock on wood, will be graduating soon. So because of my because of my history with the NSTS and SEG, it gives me more it gives me more confidence to go and speak out to other groups and other societies. And something that I think is really important is that we reach beyond the sister societies that we already have. And that is what I think will help better develop near surface. And I think it will help us reach more. I think it will help us reach more geoscientists because I mean, given the current state of the world, not just because of what's going on right now, but in terms of the industry, it's important that we address near-surface problems because, like I said earlier, near-surface problems are everyone's problems. I mean, you build your house there, you build your road there, you, you have water resources that are in the near-surface. And so, like I said, these are always going to be problems that are occurring. And so it's important to build relationships with other societies that focus on these types of problems. So, for instance, it's important that we look beyond petroleum engineers and reach out to civil engineers, geotechnical engineers, structural engineers. And so that's what I'm doing specifically right now. And why I'm getting a degree in geotechnical engineering right now. At my own university, I'm working with engineering faculty to kind of show them the light that is geophysics and show them how geophysical tools are just that. They are tools that they can use to enhance the way that they already do their jobs. Just like engineers help us do our job. You know, they help some of their observations can enhance the way we interpret data, the way that we make observations, maybe the way that we design surveys, for instance, where we should look for certain things. 
very often we're approached by other engineers saying, hey, look, I'm having this type of problem and I'm not sure why. They call the geophysicist and we go and investigate and we help them solve their problems. So practitioners are already working together. So it's important that professional societies also work together so that they can develop better resources, maybe better educational resources, short courses, just information that's available so where you can relate the information together better. Sometimes engineers speak in different terms than geophysicists do, something I encounter every day talking to my committee members. Words that I use are different from words that they use. So without an understanding of both fields, it can be difficult to talk to each other. So I think that's why I believe that on a professional level, it's so critical that these societies start talking together because if the societies are talking together, then their members are going to feel more comfortable talking to each other. Well, thank you for doing that type of work. That's much needed. And, and lastly here, let you go on this one. If you could solve one mystery, just one mystery as a scientist, what would you hope to solve in your career? You know, something I would like to do is find a way to better enhance our resolution of our data. Take karst environments, for example. One of the main problems with karst environments is that karst features can be really narrow or really small. So sometimes when you go out and do a survey, the spacing between your sensors might be just too big where the feature is outside of your resolution. Resolution can be a problem for everybody. So if we can somehow find a way to enhance or increase our resolution, no matter what our spread size is, either through a new algorithm development or processing or something, I think that will be a really incredible and valuable thing. Now, I won't be able to solve that problem because I'm terrible at programming. But I think it would really be a game changer for karst features, for other types of voids, you know, clandestine voids and such like that, because that's one of the main, that's a big problem in near surface is trying to find features that are smaller than the acquisition parameters that we're using, because then that doubles your work. Or if you don't find the feature, then you come, the client may come back and tell you, well, this method doesn't work. And you're saying, well, it does work. I just need to fine tune this. Well, that's a, a great response. I appreciate your thoughtfulness and all these answers staying a little late. Your dog almost made it to the very end without making a sound. Did you hear my dog? Oh my God. <laughs> He's, he sighed, I think is what the problem was. <laughs> Again, thanks for all your engagement with the SCG. Really appreciate that. No, no problem. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for listening to SCG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.